Hello, Seekers. Welcome to Everyday Seeker. This is podcast number five. Today, I'm so lucky. I, I have Dr. Jamie Caraganis with us today. He happens to be my cousin. Maybe that's how I got to be so lucky as to get a psychiatrist to come on the show <laughs> and talk to us about, um, share some of his knowledge. Um, so he is a psychiatrist. He's also a photographer and a songwriter and a wind rider and a hunter, fisherman, wood turner, lapidary artist, and a maple syrup maker. <laughs> and a Canadian, right? So, of course, we have that last little bit in there just in case you didn't believe us. <laughs> but um, welcome, Jamie. Thank you for coming on and, and chatting with us today. Thanks, Rebecca. That's a nice introduction. A jack of all trades and master of none. That's me through and through. Well, you have a lot going on, that's for <laughs> sure. It's never going to be boring hanging out with you. Yeah. So. Well, I, uh, there's all kinds of things I love to do, and none of them very well. <laughs> I, I, that's not true. I saw the table that you made at Tony River. <laughs> the thing uh, is beautiful. Sweet. It's a piece. It's a piece of artwork that's made from. Um, driftwood and glass and beach glass and it's I, w I would definitely not sell yourself short in that department <laughs> but anyhow thank you um so jamie dr Carraganis, i'm going to try to call him that for this interview just so you can find him um if you want to find connect with his facebook page he does have a community there where he's always sharing and you know having an open dialogue with people um, but he's passionate about eradicating the stigma of mental illness. It's really um, something that keeps popping up over and over again in the news and in real life. And um, so, you know, he recently gave a talk at a high school. He is wanting to share the tools that he has that can help other people in the struggle. And it's not just, I suppose, people that are clinically mentally ill. I mean, this can help all of us. Um, <laughs> our, we all get caught up in our minds. So anyhow, uh, I wanted to ask you, Jamie, what drew, Jamie, Dr. Caraganis, this is going to be an interesting one. <laughs> you, you can call me whatever you like. I know, but I just me, want right. people to be able to find you, right? So, uh, but what drew you to psychiatry and the work that you are currently doing? Well, um, I guess I, I first realized I wanted to do psychiatry when I was in fourth year of medical school, and we all had to do rotations through various specialties and, uh, you know, get, get experience doing, you know, cardiology, internal medicine, radiology, uh, uh, surgery, all these different things. And then psychiatry was one, and uh, I can't say that I was really looking for to it because uh, my recollections from medical school were really just sort of trying to memorize names of drugs and side effects and stuff and it wasn't <laughs> very interesting but uh, but when when I got onto the wards and saw actual patients and uh, saw you know, some of the things that people were were going through um, one patient in particular I remember had uh, electroconvulsive therapy because she was severely depressed she was uh, basically what in what we call a catatonic stupor and she was she was in the bed and was, had no energy to get out of the bed could just barely open her eyes she wasn't eating and, and wasn't drinking for a few days and basically if, if she was just left there she would have died wow. and, and uh, we gave her a course of electroconvulsive therapy and after about uh, the third treatment she started lightening up and getting up out of bed and, and 
after four or five treatments she was she was talking and and, and even smiling and uh, it was just amazing to see the transformation wow. happening so quickly with that uh, with that treatment Wow that's really amazing yeah so that kind of got me interested in psychiatry and I've always said since then if I ever got you know in that kind of a state of mind don't hesitate to give me ECT <laughs> it's called ECT electroconvulsive therapy yeah Wow, that's interesting. That's something that I actually know nothing about, but I have heard of maybe one or two people um, who have received that sort of treatment actually successfully or fairly successfully. But is that is that used typically as sort of a last resort? or? Um... It is as a rule, yeah. Usually we use that when, when everything else hasn't worked. Um, occasionally somebody will, will come to us and, and state a preference for having that basically because they want to get better faster hmm. uh, because the medications do take uh, some time to, to become effective for, for serious mental illness. But yeah, usually it's a treatment of last resort. And it's one of those things, as you know, that has some stigma attached to it. Sure. You know, uh, everybody saw one flew over the cuckoo's nest and, and they think that that's what, uh, what did Jack Nicholson's character in. But in fact, it wasn't the, the ECT. It was the lobotomy. Oh, really. <laughs> Yeah. What is a lobotomy? Actually, just out of curiosity. Oh, that's a that's a very uh, uh, rarely done procedure these days for uh, uh, really intractable uh, mental illnesses such as uh, severe obsessive compulsive compulsive disorder. And I, I don't know that that anyone's even still doing it. Um, but it basically involves it's a surgical procedure where you cut some of the nerve pathways in the brain and uh, basically you're blocking those um, mm. um, nerve transmissions that, that cause the, uh, the symptoms. Wow. But of course, you know, you're left with some uh, serious residual um, uh, personality changes, you know, I think, in, in most cases that, uh, that doesn't really come back. So yeah, once, you, once you go for that, it's got to be really a last resort. Yeah, so is it something like that? I'm assuming all of this would be done primarily to alleviate the suffering of the patient. Um, Absolutely, yeah. yeah, and with consent, of course. Sure. Wow. Um, it's funny, we've started to talk with the, with the, the most, uh, the heaviest, I guess, uh, just heaviest right types of therapies first. No, but this is yeah. perfect because this is actually a really great illustration of just how, um, just how tough this stuff can be. <laughs> you know, like the extent of some of some people's mental suffering can be sure. so extreme that you'll do anything to feel better and you, you'll try anything and you've tried everything some people have tried everything and and they still they've still been suffering so you know I mean it's, it's, it seems really drastic but I mean it just tells you about about the tough place that these people were in that were forced well, to sure consider does, some of these things yeah, and, it, and it's better than the alternative. I mean, a lot of these people will be suicidal, and uh, mm -hmm. they're they're ready to check out. And um, yeah. it can it can prevent uh, it can prevent suicide and bring quality of life back. Yeah, I mean, we all just want to be happy, really. Um, sure. Yeah. And and that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of what this podcast is about is just talking to to different people 
and finding out what I suppose what they found on their journey toward happiness and their philosophy of life is. Mm. And so um, I did want to define mental illness, but uh, we are going to, you know, be actually talking about some constructive uh, ways that we can help ourselves just feel better and deal with um, the difficulty of sitting and living with our minds. You know, we all get mm -hmm. trapped in negative thinking patterns. We have thoughts that make us feel bad. Um, so, I yeah. mean, we're going to be, just for our listeners, we're going to be talking about things like that <laughs> in this podcast. But let's okay. define mental illness first. Um, how would you define mental illness? Well, it's a, any kind of a disorder of the mind that results in... Uh, symptoms and suffering i guess and and typically uh, impairment of function usually that's uh, one one of the definitions or one of the criteria that's used to define any particular disorder mm. is uh, deterioration in function or loss of function function as in like they're not able to live their life the way they would normally live their life or want to live their life exactly it may be uh, social function or occupational function you know these kinds of things right Okay. No, that makes sense. Yeah, because that was going to be another question I have here is just how can you tell the difference between somebody just having a rough patch going through? And oh, this is actually, here's the question I want to ask then. So mental illness, a diagnosis of having a mental illness isn't necessarily a forever diagnosis then, um, is it? No, no. Um, you know, lots of people have a, a condition for a while, and they'll and they'll get over it uh, either mm. with or without treatment. I mean, most of the time, uh, we can speed up a person's response with treatment. But uh, in many cases, if you wait long enough, uh, whatever the episode is a person's having will go away. Um, mm. Now, that's that's not for all disorders. It's it's for some, but you know, not for all. Oh, yeah, that makes a, yeah exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and so, and I, I admit personally that I've experienced, um, I've experienced that and definitely had a time in my life where I needed <laughs> treatment and, you know, sure. I've gone long periods of time. I mean, my thing is that I have PTSD, so I can still get triggered, but I go, you know, long periods of time, years and years where I'm basically, I'm good. Um, <laughs> so, uh, what, what we're going to talk about today is something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which I actually have found to be really, really helpful. Um, I didn't seek it out in particular. I just kind of stumbled upon it. And I don't even think that I realized when I first stumbled upon it that that's what it was called. Um, but it's also mm -hmm. referred to as CBT. Um, so can you tell right. us what that is, Dr. K? <laughs> well, uh, it has to do with trying to change the way that you think about things in order to change the way that you feel and and uh, the idea is that every time a situation happens that that you notice um, you have a thought about that and you have a feeling about that in many cases and most of us don't recognize that there's a thought in between the situation and the feeling because it happens so quickly it's almost automatic and usually well we're, we're assessing every situation every moment of every day and we're you know billions and billions of bits of information passing through our brain and we, we have to uh, filter out a lot of it and just try to notice what's relevant and okay. sometimes we make mistakes in noticing what's relevant and the bias that we have tends to be on the negative side it's not always but you know on balance you're more likely to interpret something 
being negative than positive um, on average. Do you not, think no, that's not always, but yeah. Right. Do you think that's like a survival uh, mechanism that we're always my kind of looking of out for danger? You know. Yeah, exactly. I think that's sort of a leftover evolutionary trait that enables survival of our species. You know, if you're erring on the side of caution, you're probably going to be more likely to get away from the saber-toothed tigers, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. But, but it does sort of still persist, you know, in day-to-day -day life now in other forms. Mm -hmm. So uh, what would be an example of cognitive behavioral therapy or like how an example of a way that you would change your thought pattern using CBT? Well, if you, if you have somebody, for example, who is jumping to conclusions a lot, who, who, who tends to interpret something as having some negative meaning about them, you know, that would be jumping to conclusions and also personalizing. And you have to ask the person to stop and think it through and ask if there's any other possible explanations besides the one that first came to mind. And the way that we do this is uh, through written down pencil and paper exercises. Mm. And the idea is to try to create, have the person create their own evidence uh, that what they automatically think is happening may not be uh, the only <laughs> explanation. Uh, right. Because if you just tell them that, you know, there's, there's also a tendency to automatically resist what you're what you're being told. So, when you figure something out for yourself, it has a lot more uh, power and impact on you. So, uh, what's what's happening is is a person has all these sort of negative thoughts that seem to be self-evident when they're in your head. But when you take those thoughts out of the, out of the person's head and write them down on paper, then they're kind of vulnerable to. Uh, uh, rational analysis sure. and uh, it, it becomes easier yeah it becomes easier than to uh, to try to to see the error of our thinking and to change those negative thoughts with more rational thoughts mm -hmm. it's not always it's not just sort of switching it to positive automatically it's it's not like pretending you know like you're a Pollyanna or something but right. it's really looking at all possible angles of, of something and, and coming up with a final point of view that may not be the first automatic thought Sure. I mean, one of the things, I wish I still had this book that I, the book is called From Panic to Power by, by a woman named Lucinda Bassett. Are you familiar with that book? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've heard of it, yeah. It was, I remember my mom got it for me when I was, you know, going through, you know, I, the first time I had a panic attack, I didn't know what was happening to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. I just thought I was sure. losing my mind. Um, yeah. And so luckily I haven't had one in a very, very long time. Um, but some, I wish I still Good. had this book because, yeah, it's great. <laughs> I wish I still had this book mm -hmm. because she really broke down. One of the things the, that we do is the all or nothing thinking, right? Um, and I think sure. you just sort of alluded to that is one of that's one of the things that can pop up is you know if something goes wrong thinking that everything's going to go wrong or that it's always that it will never work out you know instead of just seeing mm -hmm. it as you know um this this one little bump in the road or the tendency to be a perfectionist and always think things have to be perfect and that's really yeah. just not realistic at all um, right yeah i mean do you feel like that's a a trait that you notice in patients that come to you that <laughs> the perfectionistic oh, sure. yeah. Kind yeah. Of thing yeah and uh it's not always something that somebody comes to see me for but it, you know it often you know may emerge during uh during other treatment and you can see that as, as being something that's getting in the way of uh of uh, effective therapy sometimes mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, and one of the things, I don't know, you, maybe you can answer this question. I don't know if this would be considered CBT, but one of the things that I did, that I, skills that I got from this book was something called what ifing. Um, that's what she, uh-huh. she had referred to it as what ifing. Yeah. So yeah. Um, let me think of an example. Like what if I, you know, I'm a musician, right? So I don't get taxes taken out of my check. I always have to pay taxes at the end of the year. And I often get nervous mm-hmm. about how much I'm going to owe, even though sure. I have a lot of write-offs. So I'm like, what if I can't pay my taxes? <laughs> you know, yeah. and then what if I, you know, really, what if I lose my job or what if, you know, I can't pay my taxes and what if I can never pay my taxes and all this bad stuff happens and then what if they put me in jail and before you know it, you're just like, you know, coming up with this, it's, it's like before you know it, you're in jail. It's like absolutely right. hilariously like ludicrous. I mean, all I did was yeah. think, okay, well, this is a bunch of money that I, that I might have to pay and suddenly like I've gone from, from like one little thought like that to I'm in jail. It's so extreme, yeah. you know, I mean, this is like so, not so when you have yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. When, when you have worries like that, it's like you're going through it twice. You're going through it once in your mind. And then if it really does happen, okay, then you've gone through it twice. <laughs> yeah. But if it never happens, you've gone through it once for nothing. For nothing. Yeah. So there's really, you know, when you look at it that way, it's really not a useful thing it's, to go through. It's really not. And actually, just hearing you say that is like, um, it's like a light, it's a light in the dark, you know, it's so great. And um, <laughs> it can just, it can pull you right out of it. But it's yeah. so hard when you're in it to even see that you're being irrational. It's like the same, you well, know, you're right. um, it's like the same um, catch 22 with having a panic attack is that you're afraid of having a panic attack. So that's often what will make you have one. And, you know, anytime that sure. I've had anxiety, I'll be like, what if I have a panic attack? What if I can't yes. work? What if I lose, you know, and you just go down this. And it, the craziest thing to me about it is that even though I have dug myself out of this cycle countless times and like, like really, truly gotten through it and been fine, I find mm. some these things can come back up. It's like learning it once isn't enough. <laughs> it's almost like, you know, we have amnesia or something. It doesn't stick. So, you, you know, having these kind of skills and being able to return to um, like a template or having some sort of dialogue where you can check yourself with CBT is really useful. Well, well, it, it makes perfect sense that you would have to learn it more than once because look how long you've been learning the the, the negative way of doing it, right? You've been sure. you've been practicing that for. Well, not saying you. I'm saying you generically, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a person with a, with this kind of problem has been practicing it for years and years and years, kind of unconsciously, so they become an expert at it and it becomes automatic. It's the default state. So if you want to change the default state, you have to practice doing something different. And, and that takes effort. You know, it's like, I don't know, when Tiger Woods was trying to change his swing, you know, he, he was really bad for a while, but after a while I kept going and going, eventually got a better swing out of it. But when you're do, just like that, when you're, when you're trying to do something different, a different way of thinking, for example, it feels really weird. It feels, feels very unnatural. And there's almost a comfort in those in those old uh, negative thoughts, you know, the, because they're so familiar. But if you keep at it, you keep practicing. Eventually, the uh, the rational, the alternative thoughts will come uh, quicker and more naturally. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely been true in my case. I found that it was work. However, I also found that even in, from the first time of it's like I just said, even hearing you say 
some of this stuff as like a light in the dark and something shifts in your perspective really, really quite quickly and it can happen in a split second. So applying mm -hmm. um, a different way of thinking, because with that whole what ifing thing, Lucinda Bassett, she said, well, why don't you flip it around? Um, instead of saying, what if I owe more money than I can pay? You could say, what if I don't? Oh, more money than I can yeah. pay. You know, yeah. and what if you get a refund? <laughs> what? Yeah. Or what if you owe a bunch of money, but you can still figure out a way to pay it? Like, what if that happens instead? Yeah. And that's just as okay. likely to happen, if not more likely. And so, even though over time, you know, because these are tendencies and habits I have with my mind, and many other people have with my with their minds, the first time that you apply this new technique, it works right away the first time you it experience can, yeah. that yeah i mean well, at least for me i mean you might have to again it's like it's not like a permanent fix you might have a shift in perspective that lasts only 10 seconds but you can see all of a sudden you can see everything differently and so that's right that there's know, another alternative yeah just for a moment everything shifts mm -hmm. and then you go oh okay there's something to this and then from that point on you begin to try to work with that skill, I suppose, or that technique. So what is one of the first things that you would have someone do or the first step that you would have someone take if they came in with a particular anxiety or depression or a negative thought pattern? Um, well, I, I would do um, uh, an initial assessment that, that includes the standard sort of uh, history taking and uh, mental status examination. Um, and at the end of that, I, you know, we would talk about what the uh, diagnosis uh, might be and what the treatment options could be. And that typically could include uh, medications and or uh, psychotherapy. And in my case, the psychotherapy is cognitive behavior therapy. Right. And sometimes people will choose one, sometimes they'll choose others, sometimes they'll choose both, sometimes they'll choose neither. <laughs> Wow, um, you know, I just, I'm sorry, yeah. that's just, um, I guess I had never really thought about the fact that the patient gets to choose, <laughs> I suppose. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. Everything, is, everything we do is consent. Sure, um, of yeah, course, sometimes but you people have a recommendation. That the doctor is just imposed, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd recommend this, I'd recommend that, but at the end of the day, it's up to the patient because, you know, if, if the person doesn't want to take the treatment, they're not going to take the treatment. Of course. And, of you know, course. we might as well be honest with each other about this, right? Sure. No, of course. I suppose I just, for me, any time that I've ever, you know, gone to a doctor, I'm, you know, for the most part, I'm looking to take their advice because <laughs> I don't know what to do yeah. at that point. So yeah. do you, yeah. um, when I, I was a psych student way, way back in the day, I mean, it's like been over a decade at this point. So what I, what I, and actually when I was a psych, psych student was when I was experiencing a lot of anxiety and so it's a little mm -hmm. bit of a foggy time for me, and it's been it's been a while. But I do recall at some point that I was reading or was in some lecture where they had mentioned that the success rate for treatment, at least among anxiety and depression, I mean, I can't speak for a lot of other mental illness, but those seem to be uh, actually a side question. Um, are those the most pre prevalent mental illnesses, would you say, in our society today, in our culture? Uh, I, I would say they'd, they'd be the most common ones. Yeah, anxiety disorders and, and mood disorders would, uh, would cover most of the common ones. And then if you include adjustment reactions, which is a, a reaction to stress, then uh, you'd, you'd have the, really the top most common disorders there. 
Right. And a reaction to stress, that could be like something circumstantial that happened in the person's life that's really challenging and is they're having a hard time adjusting to their new reality. Is that yeah, that but uh, it's that kind of thing. But then uh, it doesn't meet the criteria for any other mental disorder. Like, say, for example, uh, if, if the person has a depressed mood, they might have three other symptoms instead of five other symptoms that you would need to make the diagnosis. Right. So in that sense, it's not yeah, even, technically. yeah, it's not even like that they have a disorder. It's just this is a crappy time in their life and they need some help getting through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Um, but I'm, I seem to recall that back in the day when I was a psych student that they had mentioned for at least anxiety and depression um, that the statistics showed that those disorders were treated most successfully um, either with CBT alone or with CBT in, a, in um, conjunction with medication, but that the medication, those people that suffered from anxiety and depression and were treated only with medication but that didn't have any supporting therapy didn't do as well. And I was just curious if, I mean, there is absolutely, I, I mean, this is just like a vague memory, so I can't cite any particular resource, but I'm curious if that seems to be the case. Um, I remember reading a, a study recently, and I don't know if it might have even been a what they call a meta-analysis, which is a review of other studies um, that compared randomized controlled trials of CBT alone uh, and randomized controlled trials of CBT plus medications, and finding that um, there wasn't really any clear-cut difference between those those two, that when you added medications, it wasn't uh, any more effective on average than uh, cognitive behavior therapy alone. Mm -hmm. But you know, you always have to read studies with a grain of salt too, because even good randomized controlled trials have their biases built in as well. And uh, you know, there may be one drug that really is effective, but it gets uh, it gets lost when you bury that result in among all the other drugs that may not oh, be as effective. Yeah. For example, okay. that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, because a lot of these medications are in the same category, but they are different and they do affect people slightly differently. Um, exactly, wow. and and uh, lots of times you get someone who will respond to one drug but not another. But uh -huh. you know, on average, you know, almost all the drugs you know for a mood disorder are the same but for any individual you know there may be only one or two drugs that uh, that they have a good response to and the rest of them they don't have as good a response to and, and we, so far we don't have a way to figure that out except by trial and error right that's amazing I mean still though I think that it's it's worth it's worth considering that statistic seeing that that uh, that seems to suggest that CBT can be just as effective on its own as it as it is in c conjunction with medication did the, and that study didn't say anything about there was no control group for like just medication with no CBT uh, there may have been uh, but again I can't recall whether mm -hmm. this was a uh, one of those meta-analysis or whether it was a uh, a study all by itself. Right. Wow. Well, I will just say from my own personal experience as somebody who, 
you know, 10 years ago did take medication for anxiety for a period of time, a year or two. Um, and did mm-hmm. use, I would never have gotten off it if it, I needed it at the time because, you know, I, sure. I needed to kind of stabilize and distance myself from a particular experience that I had that, you know, was traumatic yeah. for me that it was causing panic attacks. But so I stabilized, but I, I don't think that I would have gotten, um, gotten off it without CBT. I really did have to kind of well. change, uh, my thought patterns. I really did. And it really helped me. So in, in a lot of cases, Rebecca, you have to, uh, have the medication to give a person a kind of a, a leg up or a yeah. boost before they can like, say, for example, if the anxiety is that bad, the person can't concentrate or pay attention. Yeah. Well, you can do all the C and CBT in the world. It's not going to make any difference. Yeah. You need your you know, head person to, has stop to be spinning. able to listen and understand. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I I feel like I may have um I may have actually interrupted you before and I was asking you but you said that a lot of these exercises that someone will do for CBT involve pen and paper journaling. Um yep. is is there yep. a particular one that you'd be able to share that's effective for any sort of like negative thought pattern that like the average person is probably suffering from from time to time? Well, the go-to one that I use pretty much every day in the therapy that I uh, do with CBT is called the Daily Record of Dysfunctional Thoughts, or the Thought Record, yeah, for mm. short. And and it basically consists of six columns. And in the first column, what you do is you write down a situation that uh, was bothering you, like something that led to some negative thought, hey? It's just some random situation you might have experienced during the day. You know, let's say, walk down the corridor and you smiled at uh, your friend and your friend ignored you, okay? Okay. That might be a a kind of a a typical situation. So then in the next column, you would write down what emotions you experienced at that moment when it happened, from best recollection, and you try to quantify those emotions on a scale of 0 to 100. Mm. So that's your, your kind of your baseline, what you're starting off with. So you might say anxiety 60 or you might say anger 85 or whatever. And then in the next column, you write down what thoughts automatically occurred and you know, what, what went through your head at the time when that event happened. So you might say, you know, geez, that, that bugger, you know, he's, he's so <laughs> full of himself he couldn't even say hi or, or uh, I don't know. That's like yeah. a typical negative thought, right? And then there might be others that go along with this. You might down, write, write down two or three in that column. And then in the next column, you try to um, categorize the negative thoughts according to, there's a sort of a standard list of uh, negative thoughts or cognitive distortions, we call them. And it includes jumping to conclusions and all or nothing thinking and personalizing and right. uh, uh, emotional reasoning. There's, there's typically there's 10 of those, magnification, catastrophizing and so on. Anyway, when you can, if you can try to find a category to put that thought in, it makes it a little more objective, you know, a little more prone to uh, to being analyzed, if if I can use that that yeah. word <laughs> in a different way, um, because what we do is not analysis, but in the old-fashioned sense. So that's the four first four columns, and then the f- in the fifth column, you write down well, what would an alternative thought be? Or what would a, uh, if I was being rational, what would I say instead of that first thought? Or if a friend was giving me advice, what, what, what would that friend say? Mm. 
Mm. You know, and maybe the friend would say, uh, well, you know, perhaps that person was preoccupied with something else and just literally didn't notice you. Um, you know, something like that. Uh, that might not have occurred to you. Right. Or that might have been a thought that you, you completely dismissed. You know, typically we, we often, when we have these negative thoughts, we might disqualify a positive one that comes along for no good reason. Oh, yeah. So then in the last column, after you've written down a few rational responses or better thoughts, alternative thoughts that might equally be as likely, uh, then you write down what emotions you're experiencing now at the end of this exercise. And typically those sort of high numbers you had in the beginning will come down and there'll be lower numbers. And then you look at the before and after say, okay, wow, well, this, this exercise has made a difference in how I was thinking and feeling. And by repeating that, and it only takes five or ten minutes to do one of those, by repeating that enough times, you know, over, over a period of weeks or months, eventually you start to figure out what the negative patterns of thoughts are that you're having and how to replace those with, uh, with better thoughts. And you're practicing it and you're laying down new pathways in your brain that become more likely to be followed instead of the old negative pathways. Wow. So it's basically practice makes perfect, like any, any new skill. Absolutely. Actually, can you just say a little bit about this pathways thing? So the concept, I think, is that literally your neural pathways actually physically change in your brain. They, do, they do. They physically change. We used to think the brain never changed, but it, it, we know now that it does. And mm -hmm. uh, pathways are being made and, and pruned in the way that we prune branches off of trees when they're dead or not being used. Um, the same thing happens to nerve connections, and that's, that's sort of what happens when we're learning and when we're forgetting. So when we learn something new, the nerve pathways uh, get better connections. They, they get reinforced. Um, the myelin sheath that, that surrounds the, uh, the axon that delivers the nerve impulse down, down the cell from one cell to the, to the other, these myelin sheaths actually get thicker as a result of practice. This has been, been recently wow. um, discovered through, uh, uh, through studies. So, uh, yeah, and that's something I just, I just learned myself a few weeks ago. Really? I didn't know that was part of the reason. Yeah, oh, yeah wow. I mean, I thought it was just connections. So it's well, the myelin we sheath connections thing. Connections are made of broken. Myelin sheath and connections that are used more frequently get reinforced, and connections that are not frequently used they sort of uh, get, get pruned off and they, they die away. Mm, they atrophy. This is really yeah. fascinating. There's a guy named Joe Dispenza who's in the New Age community that talks a lot about this and how it applies to things like the law of attraction. And I don't know, I mean, this isn't really, I'm not sure if you know if this is kind of in your, on your radar or any of this stuff, but the point I, I wanted to make is that it's actually what you're saying, the science is showing, is actually like pretty much in direct alignment with stuff that a lot of the new age community is talking about in terms of how you're changing your thoughts does change your experience of your life well, and change your I, life i think we can come to this conclusion through different routes yeah and the neatest thing that i saw was a, a couple of weeks ago i ran into a, a video online by a guy who uh, was riding a bicycle that steered backwards and uh, somebody you know an engineer made this or a welder made it for him. He's an engineer, and and basically, when you turn the steering wheel or the handlebars left, the bike turns to the right. And when you turn <laughs> the handlebars to the right, the bike turns to the left. So wow. this guy, being an engineer, figured, okay, well, all I got to do to ride this bike is to think opposite to what I would normally do. 
And he got on the bike and he couldn't ride it, you know, no matter what he did. Yeah. He couldn't, but he kept going. He practiced it for a, you know, for a period of time every day. And after eight months, he finally figured out how to ride the bike and it just sort of clicked in. And, uh, and wow. what he learned from this, he, he came to this conclusion, you know, that, that there are pathways in our brain that are very, very, uh, you know, well-laid, well-traveled, uh, uh, reinforce things that, that are really hard to overcome. But with practice, you can create new pathways. And eventually that new pathway is going to be, you know, more easy to follow. So, uh, so that's what he did. And he, he rode the backwards bike for a while. And then he, then he got on a normal bike. He thought he could ride that again. Well, he, he was falling all <laughs> over the place. He couldn't ride the normal bike. Uh, it was funny to watch. But oh then eventually that, that normal, the previous pathway kicked in again and he could ride the bike again. That's incredible. So, so it just blew my mind. Thank it blew you my mind because he, he should watch that video. He said uh, just the same thing about the pathways being made and, and uh, everybody has these. And he figured it out by riding a backwards bicycle. Oh, my God. Thank you for sharing that because that's such a, like a freaking awesome example. Um, Google it. It's really cool. It's only a seven-minute video. What do we Google? A backwards bicycle. Oh my gosh, I'm going to watch it as soon as I get off Skype with you. That's so cool. Yeah. And the interesting yeah. thing is that it took him eight months of practicing every single day. So, I mean, I like to refer Yeah, and everything. he had a kid that did it. His son did it. Uh, sorry, he had, his son also did it. He, he made a smaller one for his son, and his son figured it out in two weeks. And Gosh. it sort of proved that to him that uh, the younger brains are more plastic and easier to... Uh, to overcome these pathways, which, yeah. you know, we knew from medicine anyway. That makes so much sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and I like to refer everything back to astrology because I'm such an astrology nerd, but, you know, I'm like, I'm an Aries, so Aries are very impatient. We're not patient. We don't like to wait that long. And so one of the, the things that I find myself getting frustrated over is, you know, I'll be trying to make certain changes and I don't see results quickly. And I, I'm like, oh, well, yeah. you know, and I throw my hands up. Well, and now so, you have a reason for it. Exactly. There's this, but there's a stick to itness that... Mm -hmm. Like that, I'm so glad that you told me about this. No, I'm, I'm like really, really glad. And I'm glad because I know I'm not the only one. So anyone listening who is also an impatient person, there really is something to be said for, for practice and, and that stick to itness. Um, well, I'll tell you another example of that, Rebecca. I, I used to be anxious when I was speaking in public. Um, and uh, it was, you know, it was a skill that I wanted to acquire. I wanted to learn how to... Uh, persuade large audiences by, you know, talking to them t about the things that I've learned that have been helpful. Um, but I was anxious doing it. A lot of people would rather die than public speak. <laughs> yeah. um, mm -hmm. That wasn't that bad, but, you know, I, I did get, get a lot of physical symptoms of anxiety, but I just kept doing it and kept doing it. And it was after about my 300th talk that eventually it, it stopped. <laughs> And now uh, I'm up to uh, closer to 400 talks now, and I don't get anxious anymore before I do them. Not even a little nervous? Uh, maybe, maybe barely, but you know, it's 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 completely insignificant compared to what I had before. It's exciting, more probably. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting because you know I'm a. I'm yeah. a, a musician, so I still get nervous, um, not before every mm -hmm. gig, not before the wedding gigs that I do on the weekends, you know, I'm like, been doing them for so long, but you know, different 
gigs, ones that are sort of, this sounds terrible, but I'm like, ones that are more important to me, you know, like where it's like, <laughs> not that the weddings aren't important, now my foot's in my mouth, but you know, it, those are tend to be more background music, you know, people are kind of doing what they're yeah. doing and you're there on the side. But you know, I still get nervous, yeah. and um, I don't like it. But there's but a number, Rebecca. Yeah. You'll you'll find there's a number. <laughs> you'll meet, you, maybe you haven't met that number yet. Maybe it's you know uh, 200 weddings, or maybe it's 150. I don't know. But well, you've got a number also. somewhere beyond which you won't be nervous anymore. Well, it's interesting because there's also uh, a sentiment in the, I suppose even maybe even theater community. Um, they always say the second night of a show when you first open a show is like the worst night. It's mm -hmm. kind of like the womp womp because you're so nervous on the first night and it might be a little rough, but you have this electricity and this energy. And the second night, yeah. it's kind of like you're over that and you might have lost some of it and then, then it will come back as you you know go th out throughout the show. But a little bit of nerves, are, is they're good to have that because that creates... Sure. You know, it creates like a an, an energy. You just have to make sure that it's uh, to not to the point where you can't handle right. it. Um, and it's not excessive, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, one question that I I actually just came to mind as you were telling the bicycle story um, is I'm actually wondering um, because of these neural connections that are made and these habits that form and how long they can take us, you know, we, if we can overcome these habits, these bad ha habits of our negative thinking, um, but it might take a little bit longer. And I'm wondering if um, a lot of what comes up for people tends to be rooted um, in childhood. Oh, also, um, just some of what comes up in terms of, um, sorry, now I'm like blanking on my question, but um, in well, terms of their sensitivity, yeah. in terms of their sensitivity, okay. or maybe if like their friend didn't uh, say hi to them in the hall, um, if that sure. could have been rooted in another experience they had had before, that made them feel really bad. And so now, because of that previous experience, they're now overgeneralizing to everything. Sure. Does that happen? Well, it's really a combination. It's a combination of uh, an innate, inborn emotional vulnerability, which is either there or not. And you combine that with certain experiences. And then that will sometimes bring on some kind of a, a predisposition to a disorder. Now, if you don't have that biological b vulnerability, you know, whatever the, the genetics, you know, the cards that you were dealt genetically. If you didn't have that and you go through that experience, that negative experience, you'd be able to brush it off and it's not a big deal to you. And I see this all the time. I see, you know, dozens of people going through almost the identical experience and a broad range of, uh, of reactions to those things, all of which would be completely normal considering the context that, that people went through and, and the differences in biology before, they, before they, those things happened. Yeah. That's so interesting. I remember uh, one I remember one particular guy uh Rebecca who you know just it was a slightly it was a different technique we were using in cognitive therapy and uh he had had a fight with a friend and his friend was older um and uh the next day his friend died uh of a heart attack. And he was he was racked with guilt because he thought that uh, he caused the death of his friend by stressing him out oh with that goodness. argument. And he was carrying this burden of guilt around for a long time. And uh, he came to me and we talked about it. And, and uh, uh, he couldn't think his way out of this himself. 
So what I did was I asked him to write down all the different possible factors that could have been involved in the death of his friend. So we came up with a list of about 13 or so, and that included, well, the fact that his friend probably had genetic risk factors for having a heart attack, mm -hmm. that he was older, that he was overweight, that you know maybe he wasn't taking his medications, maybe he wasn't prescribed the right medications, you know, maybe he wasn't getting the exercise that he was supposed to get and so on. And um, maybe there's other stress in his life. And, and so after we made this list, then I said, look, I want you to draw a circle and uh, we're gonna make a pie out of this. And each, each list factor that you, you put there as a factor contributing to the death of his friend, you put in a slice of pie proportional to the size of the importance of that particular factor and save your argument for the last piece mm. so when he did that guess guess how big <laughs> the piece was left for his argument how big it was the tiniest tiniest slice oh, and uh, it was really cool and uh, he let me take a picture of that and I use that for teaching now and when he saw that tiny tiny slice that was left over for the argument it was like the light went on and a huge a huge sense of relief in him and and he realized yeah, wow it's not just me that was all or nothing thinking that is so powerful <laughs> oh my goodness yeah it really was yeah yeah wow that's an amazing exercise um thank you for sharing that here mm -hmm. it's good for people who have uh, troubles with feelings of guilt sure or just you know um any sort of being a really feeling things really intensely um, I, I mm -hmm. like seem to, I mean, I know that some people seem to be more emotional than others. I personally yep. wonder if maybe, um, everyone is emotional and some people are just less able to sweep stuff under the rug than other people. I'm not really sure how it works, but it's really interesting how our emotions seem to run the show <laughs> and our yeah. behavior is not necessarily dictated. We have a mind and we have the ability to reason and to be logical, but a lot of the, the behaviors and the decisions that we make and the thoughts that we think and all the things that we feel are sort of um, not rooted in any sort of rational thinking. So that's, I suppose, the power of CBT to kind of take a step back and be able to apply this this skill that we have um, yeah yeah sometimes the thoughts those negative thoughts may have been valid at a particular time in a person's life you know earlier on but now those those thoughts or those sort of view of the world are it's no longer valid because whatever that threat was is no longer present but that's the tendency huge. is still there to overgeneralize that's so yeah. huge i feel like um Personally, that really resonates with me as you say that. And um, mm -hmm. like we have a tendency, even, you know, as we become older and, and turn into better people, you know, um, some of the things that I struggled with when I was in my early 20s are very different. I don't have those issues sure. anymore. Um, but I may yeah. still have sensitivities around, you know, because I feel like I've overcome a lot or I've become a different person. I, you know, even just silly things that could seem mundane, like I feel more attractive now. So I feel more confident in my skin as a human being, as a That's woman, cool. you know, than I used to feel. Yeah. Um, but I still will have these sensitivities and I have to remind myself, no, you're not the same person that you used to be. And a lot of these thoughts are not still valid. Um, but I don't 
really use that as a conscious thought process. So maybe I'll have to mm -hmm. apply it. I mean, it's, that's like, I can see how that could be extremely useful for people. I've, I've been collecting lists of rational responses uh, that people can use when they're having negative thoughts, like alternative ideas, um, things like, well, maybe that person really isn't thinking about me. You know, maybe they've, maybe they're thinking about what they're going to wear tomorrow night when they go out for dinner and not, not thinking about what I said, you know, two days ago right. or, uh, you know, things like, uh, life may give you a cactus, but it doesn't mean you have to sit on it. <laughs> That's so, awesome. <laughs> That's yeah, so, and the, wait, did the, you, the rule did you, of is tens that your is a quote? good one. Is that your quote? Did you come up no, with that No, no, I wish it was. Oh, no, someone so else came up with that. <laughs> uh, the other good one is the rule of tens, which is how am I going to feel about this particular thing in 10 seconds or 10 minutes or 10 hours or 10 days or 10 weeks or 10 months or 10 years? And the answer is there's a 10 somewhere where whatever that thing was isn't going to matter anymore. Okay. So why not just go there right now? That's another good one. So there's about, I got 91 of those. I'm trying to get 100. Oh my gosh. Are you serious? <clears throat> yeah. Are you going to post those anywhere? Is there anywhere that we can find that resource from you? I have, uh, I have some of them on Dr. K. I don't know that I've, I guess what I should do is post an updated list of them all. Oh, amazing. Um, there's an earlier list there somewhere that might have about 30 or 40 or 50, something like that. But I really should uh, post uh, the most up-to-date list. And actually, while we're on, while we're here, so you you all can find Dr. Jamie Karaganis at Facebook.com/slash Dr. K Psychiatry. Is that right? Is that correct? That's that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So I would, if you, I would really love it if you would, um, if you would continue to, if you have a collection of ninety-one of those, if that, at some point when you get to it, if you could post that, because that would be a resource that I would personally return to, and I would love to share that as well. Sure, um, yeah, I'll page. do that. That would just be amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you again about because you you did sort of touch on this briefly, mentioning that there are genetic predispositions to. Mm -hmm. um, mental illness, but also maybe even if it's not clinical illness, just to still a genetic predisposition to being a little anxious or being a depressed person or, you know, having certain um, thought patterns or habits or <clears throat> style of thinking. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about the nature versus nurture debate um, in terms of the co what causes mental illness. I think... Uh when it gets to the point of being an illness, there's almost almost certainly a, a genetic component of vulnerability, at least, that's sure. there. And we, we really see this uh, in doing uh, taking histories of new patients, and we always ask, you know, is there anyone in your family that has a similar kind of condition? And very frequently we do see other people who have uh, uh, depression or uh, sometimes a substance abuse disorder can... Uh, it can be like an equivalent of depression as well uh -huh. in families. Uh -huh. um, so, so very often you will see uh, a tendency to have this disorder or similar disorders uh, running in a person's family. But, but the, you know, that's not to discount the, uh, uh, the role of, of events, you know, in triggering things. If you put a, anybody through enough stress, eventually something is going to happen, you know, whether it's depression or anxiety or panic attacks or something. Uh, 
Sure, of course. And you know, being... some people have more resilience than others, but uh, and, you know that may depend on stages of life and so on. Sure, and or being raised by somebody who's you know severely anxious because our parents are our role models, so we learn yeah. a lot from them. So I can see that being yeah, sure. You know, um, something that could potentially affect somebody. So. So you believe it's both. There's a combination, and it probably is varies depending on the illness or the person or... Yeah. Well, you know, I'll tell you, here's an example of this. Um, when I, when uh, last time I had a snowmobile trailer stolen, and yes, it has happened more than once. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I didn't, when I, when I drove the skidoo back and realized... Oh, hello. I think I lost you. Oh, no. Stole their property. But I'm I skipped that. I'm so sorry. I Say that again, darling. We lost you. We lost you, but you're back. Okay. I skipped the anger feeling when my snowmobile trailer was stolen. Uh-huh. Because I had a different thought instead. And I thought, well, what kind of a person would have to make ends meet by stealing somebody else's property? Probably not somebody who was raised in a in a good family. Probably not somebody that had the same, you know, educational advantages or social advantages that I had. You got to wonder, but what kind of family history uh, was in this guy's background that made it seem like it was okay to steal someone else's property to make ends meet? And I had more of a of an empathy reaction towards him rather than uh, than anger. Sure. Now I still reported it stolen because you still have to hold people accountable to help them learn. Um, and I don't know and if they ever just, caught whoever did it, but yeah, and hopefully to get your stuff back. That. But yeah, but it was really neat how I just you know just didn't even get angry at all at that particular time, and uh, you know had a different reaction. I think that's just from practicing. That's amazing. Well, obviously, I guess you probably figured that the first time that happened to you, I can't believe it happened to you twice, but the first time that happened <laughs> to you and you got angry, it didn't really help you out in any way. Oh, was your being oh. angry, did that benefit you in any way? Not not in the slightest. It, it only mm -hmm. it only hurt me and, and uh, didn't help me get the trailer back or anything. Right. But the other the other trick you know you can use is the rule of tens. And I said, well, I knew in ten days I would I would have my skidoos back home again, and I would probably have another trailer because I'm fortunate enough to be able to buy another one. Mm -hmm. And uh, in ten days I would have a really good story to tell when I'm teaching about CBT. So I actually <laughs> turned it into something positive. That's awesome. That's so good. I love that. Mm. That's really beautiful. Um, with the genetic predispositions um, that or vulnerabilities, I suppose we could, that's a great word. I love that you used that word. Somebody's vulnerable to mm -hmm. experiencing certain things. Um, in that case, what do you think the odds are that they'll be able to overcome? And I know it depends on the particular diagnosis, but maybe just somebody that's got anxiety or that's going through a bout of depression. Um, do you often see people with with vulnerabilities or pre um, genetic predispositions able to overcome these sure oh yeah yeah just because you have uh, you know a flaw somewhere in your gene in your in your genes it doesn't mean that you can't overcome it think about all the all the years you lived, you know, when you weren't having that problem. Mm. So chances are we can do something other with medication or therapy to get you back to at least to that state of mind where you felt okay again. I love that. 
I'm glad that I asked that question because I think it's really important for people to have hope and not to just say, well, this is my lot in life, you know, my, my grandmother had it and I have it and I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm stuck, you know. Um, and in terms of people, because there are unfortunately some people that have really experienced a lot of anxiety and depression through most of their lives, even as young children. Mm -hmm. I like yeah. to think that, you know, that they can still that they can still um, feel better and that they can still overcome that. And I know it's probably a little harder in those cases, but I'm hoping that you can, you know, come at me with a, with a happy <laughs> or with uh, a, I suppose, you know, a hopeful assessment of we that can. Well. We, we can. We can. And, and uh, I'll, I'll quote uh, my favorite philosopher Epictetus from who lived, I think, between about 35 AD and around 80 AD. And he said, men are disturbed not by things, but the views men take of things, which mm -hmm. I thought was absolutely amazing when I read that. Here's a guy from 2,000 years ago, figured it all out. It's the same thing as what we're doing in cognitive therapy. Yeah. And you can, you, can, you can just deal with the event. If you can take away the amplification of that negative event that you do to yourself with your own thoughts, then you can have a lot more peace of mind. You just strip away that extra part. That's awesome. That's so true. I love it. That's mm -hmm. how truth rings through the ages, right? You know? Yep, absolutely. Um, what are your favorite resources and are there any books that you'd recommend? What, I mean, for anybody that's listening that might be interested in CBT, what, what should they do? Well, the, the Bible for CBT is, uh, in my opinion, is uh, "Feeling Good: The New Mood Therapy" by David Burns, mm. and I don't I don't read a lot of self help books, but I read that one twice because it it held my attention, and uh, I don't have the you know the longest attention span in the world either. <laughs> uh, so uh, for a, for a book to be that good that I would read it twice is really saying something. Awesome. So I recommend that one for anybody. You know, you don't have to have an anxiety disorder or a diagnosed you know major depressive disorder but uh, you know even even less if you're if you're not as ill as that you can still benefit from the ideas in that book and that's really what I've been talking about I, you know all these things that that I've learned for cognitive behavior therapy for for mental disorders they can be applied even more easily for people that don't have a major mental disorder and just make their lives better you know it can make relationships better and help you resolve conflict and stuff and that's, oh, of course. that's why I wanted to do this lecture uh, or a talk, a talk for high school students to to see how they uh, they take this. I think this stuff should be taught in schools, and I think that's you know teaching people how to think is way better than than just trying to get them to memorize facts and help them feel better. I couldn't agree more. If they taught this in schools, you'd see such mm -hmm. a especially like across the board in public schools, you you would see a huge change within a generation. I bet you. I I'm bet sure you it would. It would take time, but I'm sure you're right, Rebecca. Absolutely. I and more you. people than I are talking about it. I've heard others, you know, with the same kind of ideas in other parts of Canada. And uh, I guess others are trying it out, too. Eventually, it's going, it's going to catch on, I think. Oh, that is exciting. I'm like, I'm truly excited to hear that. Um, mm -hmm. It was yeah, hope for the future. The education system is, you know, it's, I suppose on one hand, we're blessed that we have this education system that's free, um, at least, you know, up until university but um, mm -hmm. definitely there's I think a lot that could shift and you know because it's been more or less the same for years and years and years right so yeah. as we evolve yeah. and begin to understand more 
and understand ourselves better, why not, you know, why not have something like this and, you know, implement it from like the younger, would you think that even as young as kindergarten, you would start to have some sort of form of... There's probably some way, if you, if you sat down and thought about it, you could probably come up with a program that would be kind of uh, consistently or, or in an incremental way growing throughout the years, you know, building on something that's very basic in the early years and then and then getting into stuff that's a little bit more complex as uh, as time goes on. By the time someone graduates high school, you know, they've got this, this resilience uh, um, built into them that, that helps them tolerate stress a lot better and resist uh, the onset of mental disorders, and, you know, some mental disorders anyway. Or even just problematic thinking, <laughs> yeah. just in general. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. That is truly exciting. Mm -hmm. I, I would love to mm -hmm. see that happen in my lifetime. Um, yeah, me too. Wow. I had another question about brain chemistry imbalance, and this is going to relate to, because I, I do want to ask you about the stigma that's present too, and you know, we talked about, well, I suppose it's all sort of tied together. That pilot that um, crashed the plane a few months ago, and you yeah. had done a post about that, and saying, I think they had found a doctor's note in his garbage can yeah. or something when he had gone yeah. through, yeah. Uh, when they had gone through his things, looking for evidence and trying to understand what was going on. And to, mm -hmm. that showed that he was, you know, excused. I don't know if it was that he was excused from work or, but either way, he felt that he could not be open and honest with what was going right. on. And right. he thought he would lose his job. I'm going to lose my yep. job if I if I get treatment or if I'm open about this. Um, can you just, I'm just blurbing, so maybe I'll just hand this over to you and have you. Well, with pilots in particular, I guess they're kind of a damned if you do and damned if you don't kind of thing. Once they, once they get uh, depression or, or something like that, then, okay, as soon as you have antidepressants in your system, you're not allowed to fly. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the rules. Mm -hmm. But it seems like it's okay to fly if you're depressed, which doesn't make any sense to me at all. Right. Um, and I think this is what happened to this guy. You know, he, he was flying depressed and uh, he decided this is his way to to commit suicide and um, you know again yeah people will will lose often have this risk of losing their jobs in uh, particularly in uh, positions where there's a huge amount of uh, public trust at risk it, you know it's easier to let a pilot go than it is for the airline to go under sure. um, wow. but I think we have to treat people like they're human beings and, and uh, you know one of the problems is when you go off on a disability Usually, you're getting a, only a fraction of your uh, of your previous um, compensation. You know, maybe it's sixty, seventy percent. So, yeah. you know, and I, and I think the reason for that is they don't want everybody to go off on disability willy nilly, or you know, all of our systems would come to a grinding halt. Perhaps maybe that's the logic, but but I think in some cases you really have to uh, look at ways of of making it. Okay to be sick and okay to get the treatment and then okay to come back and so you're not so you don't have something to lose by getting treatment Yeah, I mean that makes perfect sense. I mean and even just As pilots aside, I mean a lot of other people as well that might be suffering from mental illness and might need to seek treatment um, and I'm, I'm, I don't know why it's coming to mind. I'm, I'm automatically envisioning generations that are a bit older than myself. Although I know that, you know, because my generation, you and I have like, you know, probably not quite a generation between us. I mean, we're cousins, but, um, mm -hmm. but 
people seem to be more open to talking about a lot of things, but it really depends on I you. Think I so. mean, it could yeah. be also, I'm an artist, so most of the people I know are, are mm-hmm. a lot more vocal and we have like, lead less conventional lives. But there seems to be, um, people feel like they can't ask for help for one reason or another, even if they're not going to lose their job, even if it doesn't involve great yeah, financial risk. And it's, it's worrying what someone's going to think, right? That's basically what it comes down to. What are people going to think of me? What am I going to think of me, even, people, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, it's really heartbreaking to see people, to know people aren't, don't feel that they can ask for help. Well, truly, because there, there's so much availability of help. Not, not to say that, you know, there's all kinds of psychiatrists that are just waiting for business, but, you know, we're all pretty busy. But the point is that there's help out there, right? There's... I, I never really met a, uh, a disorder that I couldn't offer some kind of treatment for to help a person feel better, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's medicine or whether it's uh, therapy of some sort. There's always hope. It, it's never, you know, you never have to go for the permanent answer to a temporary problem. Maybe it mm-hmm. seems like it's, it's more than temporary, but it's not. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful, and it's so true. Um, I mean, I suppose you're in Canada. I'm based in New York right now. So, I mean, I actually don't even have health insurance <laughs> myself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have a doctor's appointment in a couple of weeks. That's going to cost me $200. No big deal. You know, just like just yeah. for a skin check to get a mole checked to make sure it's nothing, you know. So there are yeah. a lot of, it's a different ball game in America. It because, sure is. Um, yeah. If I were to get It's okay health- to have car insurance there, right? Oh, yeah, exactly, right? You, everyone has car insurance. Everyone has What's car the problem insurance. with health insurance? Because you I can't drive legally without car insurance, but you can, you can, live, you can live without it, sort of, you know. But, but for me, like, if I, I were to get health insurance, um, it would be $500 a month, and I, that wouldn't even yeah. cover everything. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I just haven't. I actually plan on doing that over the next year or two. But anyway, that's a whole other, that's a whole other thing, that aside. So mm-hmm. there, but in Canada, at least, we know that there is, and there is, you know, like New York State has, there's grants, there's Medicare and Medicaid and things like that. Um, but yeah, it's just, I feel like a lot of the, the times people um, don't speak up, even if they, we're not talking about, in this case, financial reasons keeping somebody from getting help that they need there yes we acknowledge that sometimes people just can't afford treatment but other Mm -hmm. reasons um which would keep somebody from speaking up and i feel like sometimes people don't know that they can be be helped or they might not realize that there is help so it's not just being afraid to ask for help but like feeling like um no one can help me and um Mm -hmm. And that's a negative thought. That's just one of those automatic negative thoughts to say, no one can help me. What's the evidence? It's a negative. It's it's self-evident in that person's head, but it's not really Mm -hmm. the truth. But it's dangerous because it's a belief. It's a a belief. So it's not like they're even aware that they're having a thought that there's an alternative to the thought. To them, that's Mm -hmm. just the truth in the moment. And I read this story a few weeks ago that just, I didn't feel right for like the whole rest of the day after I read it, and it was about um, a really young college student named Madison Holleran, I think, who had committed suicide in 2013, and she was fine until she went off to college. And mm-hmm. um, she just didn't feel right, and you know, her parents were trying to get her some help, and she said that she would go find you know, a therapist, but 
after about a year and a half, and she had this Instagram account, and she looked so happy in all of her pictures, you know, because that's the whole thing mm-hmm. with social media is that, like, mm-hmm. it's yeah, like select, people are, yeah. it's like, well, let me see how I can show what my life looks like, but it's not, you know, you're not going to you're not going to see the reality of everything. So that was tough. A lot of people didn't really know just how bad things were for this one girl. And she wound up um, committing suicide. And um, the biggest thing that her father had said in this article that he wanted to promote, um, and it was the exact conclusion that I came to after my own struggle with you know, anxiety and was that it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. And I, when I read that, it bowled me over because literally like that's like verbatim exactly the biggest thing that I've learned through my journey is that sometimes you're not okay and then that's okay. And it is acceptance. It's acceptance of what is. Mm -hmm. And she didn't know that. And so he wanted to, he's on a mission now to sort of promote awareness for that and so that's the biggest thing the biggest hurdle I think I mean finances yes for a lot of people yes but the biggest hurdle between people and the help they need is not is feeling like it's not okay to not to to not be okay so um it's really important that you're speaking out about this and speaking in schools and I'm just curious what you think we can do if there's anything that we can do the average person even to help spread this message or get rid of the stigma fight the stigma well i think whenever you know whenever you hear somebody making fun of somebody else with a with a mental illness or mental challenge of some sort you know maybe uh, uh, ask them if there's any other way you know to think about it besides what they had just expressed mm. you know could there be any other reason that uh, somebody's ended up this way is it really truly somebody's fault or is it really a a combination of a lot of factors that were really out of their control and why should we judge anybody else you know just because they happen to have a disorder that creates anxiety instead of a disorder that creates you know elevated blood sugar or whatever you know the other medical disorder might be Mm. Uh, these things aren't people's fault Um, you really sort of have a disorder at the end of a very long chain of events most of which you can't control but we can learn how to uh, how to get control of some of those once we figure out what's going on, and uh, and make a change, you know, and and feel better. Absolutely, and one of the big things that you're doing, I suppose, is even just having a Facebook page and creating a community and a place where people can connect and ask questions and share resources sure. yeah. and share perspectives and having the guts to speak openly about things. That's um, right. I mean. Lots of people out there have had mental health problems, and I've I've had my own as well, and I've overcome those. And the cognitive therapies made a big difference. And there's been a time that I took medications for a while, and not not needing it for that problem anymore. And you know things are good. And uh, you know I've I've had my own journey as well, and uh, uh, I think maybe that helps me connect a little more uh, with a little more empathy for my own patients as well. And I know from personal experience that there always is hope. Yeah, and that's extremely powerful too, to to see somebody like you who's got this really successful, very meaningful, purposeful career that's helping people and also having the nerve and the guts to stand up and, and say, you know, I've had my own journey. And when people see somebody, I mean, because you, you have this um, 
you're a doctor. That's a very respected career. You're, if somebody knows that about you, they're automatically going to assume you're an extremely intelligent person, and they're probably going to trust you um, innately. Well, and so it doesn't have anything to do with intelligence. These things can <laughs> happen to anybody, no matter how... how uh, endowed you are or not. Sure. No, I just mean um, in terms of having somebody that's actually a doctor stand up and say, hey, I've had my struggle. It almost makes it okay. It's like saying, oh, well, this person that I, you know, this who, who has got this great successful career and looks by all appearances to have this amazing life has also had had something come up that he has been able to overcome. And in that sense, it sort of almost makes it OK for other people as you step out and, and become more open about this. So that's why it's so powerful. So. Yeah. I feel like yeah. that's, to me, that's like the most powerful thing because there's the no biggest, shame in it. Exactly. There's so much, but there is so much shame for so many people. And so when they see others step, step up and be honest and speak honestly and openly, about mm -hmm. these things, it really starts to break down those walls, um, and people are able to see themselves more clearly. They don't think feel mm -hmm. so alone, and so I just applaud you for that. And um, thanks, Rebecca. You know, the other thing that that helps, I think, is to, is to stop and notice positive things once in a while when they do happen. And uh, right now, I'm looking out the window uh, at an amazing sunset, and. Uh, I often walk across the street or down the road and, and take, a, take a picture of this time of night. And I'm looking at it through my window now, and, and Robin has gone off to take a photo of it now. And it's just spectacular. So it's, it's really nice to just stop and absorb those, those cool things when you notice them happening. Oh, like a sunset. Absolutely. You've taken some beautiful pictures <laughs> over the years of mm, our thanks. favorite space, the favorite spot in Nova Scotia as well. So, yeah. um, you know, hobbies, being busy, having hobbies, having things you, you do that you enjoy that aren't just work mm -hmm. um, are important yeah. as well. State keeping busy is, is a really important thing to not That's too busy, right. but you know, being busy and making sure you've got stuff to do and something, some sense of purpose in your life. Um, and so, mm -hmm. you know, your work is rewarding, but you have, you're like super busy. I mean, like you, you do so much <laughs> with just, you have a lot of different hobbies. You're an extremely active person. And, um, just from experience, I would say that, uh, it's, a that's the being active and being busy and making sure I'm doing a lot of things. Um, Socially. Having a balance is important, yeah. I think. You know, yeah. I, I do work long hours, but I also like to make sure I have time to do some fun things as well and, and really to enjoy those, those times when I can do it. Totally. Yeah, and would you say that's like a good sort of a strategy to implement when somebody's feeling down is to kind of, I don't know, try to get some um, more stuff happening? Activate, or? yeah, activate. Activation therapy is, you know, is considered part of cognitive behavior therapy. Just making sure that people get up and get moving, and and uh, e even the idea that uh, uh, exercise may be one of the best antidepressants we have out there that people don't sure. take advantage of. Sure. Getting into routines and doing doing things, uh, getting give yourself a reason to get up out of bed every day. You know? Right. Yeah. I I'm, I just want to take a quick scoot back to that. I've forgotten to get into this completely as we I had asked you about the pilot, but the brain chemistry imbalance. Right. So something like exercise, mm. um, 
I'm just curious actually about how the brain, what your opinion is on brain chemistry imbalance to begin with. Um, as it well, there's no doubt it plays, it plays a role. We don't know exactly how it does, but we know, for example, that uh, dopamine is the chemical of the brain that's involved in figuring out what's relevant or salient. And when there is too much dopamine in a certain part of the brain, that's when people develop delusions, which is sort of a fixed false belief that something is extremely important that really isn't. Oh, wow. Um, and, then, and then you can get the opposite problem when you've got attention deficit disorder where there's not enough dopamine floating around in the brain and it's difficult to pay attention and figure out what is relevant and what's important because you're continuously distracted by everything else going on around you. Mm. So it's like the filter isn't working. Wow. So, so that's one chemical, you know, that can, we know that from having to, too much of it and not enough of it can cause uh, uh, interesting problems. Um, we know that serotonin uh, uh, is involved in, uh, in depression and uh, and also anxiety disorders, um, and noradrenaline is another one that's involved in in mood disorders. Mm -hmm. So and there's all kinds of others that we don't even you know we're uh, investigating, but we haven't figured out exactly what the role is. And you know we can't unfortunately you know biopsy these chemicals uh, in living people. So you know no, most people don't like to have needles inserted into <laughs> their brains. So. Sure. We have to use indirect uh, means of measuring these things when we can. Right. And what, what's interesting to me is, well, and I, again, it's been a decade, so I'm assuming there's actually been probably some advancement in the drugs that are used to treat traditional anxiety and depression. But back in the day when I was sort of in that world and I was studying psychology, it was SSRIs, so selective serotonin yep. reuptake inhibitors, and SN, SNRIs which dealt with right. serotonin and norepinephrine. And um, so yeah. those do help. I mean, I took those, actually. Um, so I know yeah. that uh, that did shift my brain chemistry, and it made it impossible for me to have a panic attack. I could not have a panic attack when I was on those yeah, drugs. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It was yeah. great, and I needed to distance myself enough from the panic that I could feel normal again. So, But also, I will say that I, I do believe in my own personal case because all of my anxiety, from what I understand, really was triggered by one particular event in my life. Mm -hmm. So um, the negative thoughts that I, the fearful thoughts that I had that were triggered by that event and then that fear, I wonder if those are what, after they kind of flew around in my brain for long enough, are what threw off the chemistry or, and I suppose there's no way to really know because I suppose I also... It's a chicken and egg thing, you, yeah. you know, you never would know for sure, but chances are one fed off the other. Right. But if you want to take another way of looking at it, Rebecca, if it wasn't for that event that, you know, that happened so many years ago, you and I wouldn't be talking here now and have an opportunity to help all of your listeners. Right, yeah, exactly. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And with the CBT... So you can turn it into something positive. Exactly. And with the CBT, uh, once I was able to apply some, this skill um, in order to shift my thoughts, I immediately felt better. Like, literally, it didn't... I yeah. mean, it didn't take months. I mean, it did take months of work in order to have a sort of a consistent thing. But I know if I have a fearful, crappy thought, I feel like shit immediately. 
It doesn't mm-hmm. take a long time. It's a doesn't split take second. Long, yeah. It takes a tenth of a second, a hundredth of a second, and I feel bad. And it's the same yeah. thing if I have a great thought. And so mm-hmm. um, I know that we're not talking long term here, but this does feed back into um, the conversation about these neural pathways and the myelin sheet. Yeah, reinforcing the right pathways. Right? Yeah, so yeah, over time. Yeah. You know, and the brain, sh- we can alter, I believe, and shift. Well, we're able, we can alter our brain physiology um, by yep. by applying this technique, cognitive behavioral therapy, to help us think in a way that's just healthier. Um, yep. So I suppose CBT can influence your brain chemistry. The way we, would you agree that the way we think influences our brain chemistry, or? Is that oh, kind of too loaded to I'm statement? pretty sure of that. Yeah. No, no, I'm I'm pretty sure it does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it all feeds there's feedback loops all over the place within the brain. So absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, I mean in a sense I suppose that's bad and good. I mean it's ultimately it's good because it means you're in control. And um, You have a lot more control than you think you do. Yeah, yeah. we feel out yeah. of control sometimes. Uh, like the mind is like a tornado sometimes, and you feel like you're just caught up in it. But you can step out, mm-hmm. and if you, if you can muster the willpower, then you really can begin to work with it. So. Well, even if you can start with just mindfulness training and learning how to observe your thoughts and observe your experiences instead of being sort of caught up by them. Well, if you can yeah. step outside of that, then, then that can give you a lot, of, a lot of peace of mind just by itself. How very Buddhist of you, Dr. K. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess this all goes back to that kind of stuff. Well, no, CBT, I, a lot of ideas in CBT are, are borrowed from Buddhism. There's they no doubt really about are. that. They really are. In episode yeah. two, I interviewed a friend of mine named Josh Summers, who's a, you know, He's basically a Buddhist. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we talked about a lot of the same things that you and I are talking about. So it's very interesting. I bet. <laughs> well, and he's probably a pretty calm fellow, hey? I mean, if you, these ideas that attachment leads to loss. And if you can learn how not to be attached to anything, you'll never have to experience loss. Well, the problem is... You know, that's is, kind of the extreme of it, but it's, yeah. it's true. Well, the problem is that I feel like you know, we're, we're human. So we're not going to never be, we're not going to be able to not attach to things, but we have to just be okay with whatever arises. Right. Even if we're like, Oh crap, I'm attached to this and that sucks, but not being (laughs) aggressive against yourself for it, not beating yourself up against it. Right. So you just kind of say, okay, that's what it is, you know, instead of fighting against it. It is what it is. Exactly. Exactly. It's just acceptance. Really. It's practicing self-acceptance. (laughs) <laughs> That's what meditation yeah. is. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to share before I ask you my final question, but is there anything else that you No, I think, I, I think we've covered a lot of the things that I would have liked to have talked about. Oh, good. Good, good, good. So is, um, is there another website that people can reach you at? I mean, I know a lot of these listeners are going to be in America, and, but, you know, I don't know if people wanted to get in touch with you to work with you, if there's a place they can reach you, or if it's just your Facebook page. Well, it's, it's just the Facebook page, and, uh, you know, in terms of working with me, I guess, in, in terms of, like, getting therapy, I'm pretty much... Uh, uh, blocked up as to as uh, to maximum capacity right now, <laughs> but uh, but I'm you know I'm always into sort of advocacy and and uh, you know I don't mind answering questions here and there that kind of thing. Okay. 
Right. So people yeah. can find you on that Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Dr. K psychiatry. And um, yeah, I I just appreciate you so much for coming on and and talking about all of this. It's like I said before, I think it's really important to have these open and honest and real discussions about the reality of these things that we experience in our lives that most of the time we don't talk about because we feel like it's not well, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree, Rebecca. And this sort of brings back to the uh, the idea of being an everyday seeker that uh, I think that for me, uh, I found a lot of personal peace of mind and, and happiness through the things that we've talked about here and uh, the ability to help other people using these these kinds of methods has been really, really cool, uh, both for me personally and, and watching others uh, get better. It's, it's, it's great. So I, I'd love to share that around and see more people using that stuff. Yeah, and I hope you do post that really long list or keep us up to date. I mean, I know you probably would take some time to put that together, but the list of um, just, you know, kind of like the, the, the rule of tens or whatever it was, all of those things that you can kind of, yeah. you can kind of check yourself before you wreck yourself, <laughs> you notice yeah, yourself um, kind of in a tailspin of crappy thoughts. Um, yep. But I wanted to ask you, what is your life philosophy? And if you had one piece of wisdom to offer the world, what would that be? Oh, I'd go right back to Epictetus' quote, mm -hmm. men are disturbed not by things, but the views they take of things. It's all about what you think. It's not, it's not the stuff that happens to you. It's what you think about that stuff. And you may not be able to control the stuff that happens, but you can control what you think about it. And with practice, you can change your approach to problems so that you don't automatically make them the worst possible uh, spin on it. Yeah. You can change your view of problems. Yeah, and with that, you change your whole life. There's always hope. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Cousin Jamie, Dr. Jamie Carraganis. Really appreciate it. My you. pleasure, Rebecca. It's nice chatting with you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I guess I guess we'll wrap it here. Thank you, seekers. Thanks, listeners, for tuning in. And um, have a wonderful week. And Jamie, take care. I will see you on you the too. flip side over in Nova Scotia, hopefully. <laughs> right on. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> take care. Bye.